It's Knut Peterson. Uh, thanks very much for coming here, Colonel Burt. Pleasure. Pleasure. Uh, my question would be, do you see, uh, we keep hearing about exit, exit strategies. Do you have any kind of feel for when that might be able to be done successfully, not politically, but successfully? Are you talking about Canadians or? Canadian, uh, Canadians. Okay, for the Canadians, uh, as you all know, our, our government has stated that 2011, we're pulling out. Right now, combat operations will cease uh, July of 2011, and we have a plan put in place from that point on. Now, a lot of planning is going on as we speak. The, uh, the United States forces are coming in into the area we are, are working closely with us. And so it will be, uh, I believe, a seamless transition from uh, July of 2011 until the end of 2011. We'll be pulling all of our equipment back out and across the, across the world back to uh, Canada. And then from there, we'll see what happens. But strategy, simple, uh, stop operations, and then a, a, a gradual drawdown of troops. I don't know if they're going to keep any staff officers in some headquarters over there. But combat operations is what we're told will stop, lead, led by Canadians. That's all I know right now. So we'll be pulling out in 2011. Like I said, what we're going to leave is important. The Afghan National Brigade, one of the best in the country, as far as I'm concerned, and the area around Kandahar has stabilized so they can start a governance. So that's our legacy we should leave as Canadians. Yes, sir. My name is Tad Mitsui. And thank you, Colonel Burt, for coming. And I was wondering what the mentoring program was about. And you enlightened me a great deal. My question is, how do you distinguish what you call, uh, for lack of a better word, terrorists, insurgents, or guerrillas from legitimate resistance? Because I'm, uh, my premise is, I was... In 1972, expelled from South Africa under Communist and Terrorist Suppression Act. And the Canadian government did not support me. Uh, the letter I received from the embassy was, as a Canadian of non-European origin, I should respect the laws of the land. Uh, it's very difficult. And now you know that, that, that terrorists are now in power. Um, President Mandela is a hero in the world. And the same thing happened to France, to the Marquis who fought Germans, and Hawks in Philippines who fought Japanese. They are heroes now. Uh, I know Taliban's are bad guys, as you termed it. But it's very difficult from time to time to distinguish those two. Thank you. That's an outstanding question. I'm sure some political science guys can write a whole thesis just based on that. The way I try to look at it is terror uh, usually has no political aim. It's only to make the government look bad. And they can come from outside. Insurgents are usually from people within, inside the same country seeking to take over or get rid of the government in place to have something else put in. And you can say the American Civil War was an insurgency at some point. Uh, at, at what point, you know, did they have, their alternate state was probably better than the state they had. What we know uh, as uh, 
North Americans and Canadians, the alternate state provided by the Taliban is not acceptable for human rights reasons. We all know that. So the insurgency inside of Afghanistan is trying to change what's in there to have another type of state that we all know is not in the best interest of the world, to have a state that, that uh, harbors terrorism around the world and suppresses its people and do not let them uh, flourish and uh, have proper governance. Now, you put two of that together, terrorists coming from Afghanistan elsewhere, inside Afghanistan, they had insurgents. Now, in the United States. So when people feel oppressed in some way or after some collateral damage, it becomes what we call an accidental guerrilla. And also you have in the gang syndrome, I call it, in some of the uh, big cities in the North America, you get some kids who become gang members. They just don't know the difference. Or if they don't become gang members, they're going to be shot by their people or stabbed by the other gangs in the same road. So we have some of that going on. So that's the challenge. What you said as a challenge is our challenge. What is a terrorist? What is a real insurgent? People ask me, if we take Taliban and incorporate into the ANA, is that good? I said, yeah, because some of these guys were gangsters. They didn't know the difference. They're what we call the accidental guerrilla. So I just added another one into you. You got the guerrillas who want to have a, a, create an insurgency. Then you got the people who become one just because they think it's right to fight against those who are there because some propaganda says you should have to do that. So I, I'm, like I said, it's a whole thesis. This political science guy here can take that and do his thesis on it. But it's a very good question. I hope I give you what I thought the difference is between three of them are. Thank you. My compliments and a great speech, sir. Uh, sir. My name's John, John Underhill. And... Uh, I wondered what the main ingredients were uh, are in the roadside bombs, and uh, why haven't the source of, the, of that ingredient been taken out by now? In other words, is a potash coming from uh, Russia that uh, we can't uh, we can't uh, interrupt, or where is it coming from? Well, IED can be made from uh, many different things. First of all, and where it comes in. Have you all seen Blazing Saddles? Okay, uh, the border. The border is almost like that gate the guy built. Only the good guys go through the gate, right? Okay, yeah. uh, so things get in. Uh, anything can make a bomb. Example, in the early days when we didn't understand some of these things, the kids want pens. We give them a pen. Only until not too long after, the springs and the pins were be pens were being used in the bombs. Batteries that we throw out were being used. Just as an example, they can, they can make their, you know, ingenious. You put a spark, a bit of metal, and a bit of uh, phosphate at the right concentrations, and uh, they do it uh, uh, different ways. I won't get into, but we're getting to understand how they do it. And our whole process of combating that is twofold. First of all, boom. We want to go left to boom as much as possible, find out how to do it. So anytime there's a, an IED that goes off or we find one, we check all around to find out the signature of the person that made it. When each time someone makes a bomb, there's a certain way he does it that leaves a signature. It's forensics. 
So we're getting to a lot of factories and bomb makers just because of that. We've got some fingerprints, and then when we get something, we have proof that they were involved. So that's the key part. The other part is how do you live with it? Remember during the Second World War, the North Atlantic convoys? You could not completely avoid the U-boats. So the whole philosophy was to how can you best configure your convoy or your procedures and tactics to have the least damage possible. And we're doing a lot of road sweeps. We've got a lot of uh, visibility going on, and we check at different times, and we're always changing the way we do things to keep them off guard as the, the uh, convoys did in the Second World War changing. So ID, a lot of things can make it. Where it comes from, all the ingredients, you have a porous border. All we try to do is control as much as possible in that realm. And the fact that we have to live with it, how do we change our pra uh, practices, our techniques, that is also a challenge we have. And like I said, it's not, it's not worse than the Second World War, the, the Atlantic convoys, where thousands of people were killed until they changed some of their tactics. Yeah, it must be a pretty, a pretty heavy bomb to blow a heavy vehicle up in the air, and, uh, and there must be a, a fair bit of excavation in the road to, uh, to do that. So I just wondered uh, if there's not a, a better way to detect that. We're trying, sir. D detect the excavation, I mean. We're, we're trying. Okay. Uh, they're good at it. The enemy has a vote. So every time we find a way of stopping them, they figure another way of doing it. Yeah. It's a cat and mouse game. Okay, thank you, sir. Thank you, sir. Oh, is it written down question? It's going to be a good one. Thank you, Colonel Burke. <laughs> Burke that was a wonderful presentation. I have three questions, but I uh, put two together. First one, you mentioned how important the nationalists were for interpretations. And recognizing all of the flags you showed and all of the countries that are involved, help me understand uh, how smart are these nationalists? I mean, do you, you know, uh, is, is English a common language among some of these troops? Or uh, do you just have a whole bunch of people that know a lot of languages? Is that it? No, most of them speak two languages, Dari and Pashto. Very few speak English. Okay. And those who speak English is English they learn uh, very quickly. So those who have a language ability, uh, the interpreter uh, contractor gives them language okay. training. And the other problem is that very quickly we realize that they don't understand the military terms. Okay. So we have to teach them as well. So they're risking their lives. They have the basis. And over time... Uh, we, uh, we train them, and the very good ones, we bring them into brigade headquarters where we do the planning. And uh, those guys are out there with us, so we have a lot of confidence in them because they're getting shot at at the same time. So uh, it's a touchy situation, but they come along learning with us, language trainers on the ground, and uh, what they learn in high school or some type of training they do with their brothers and whatnot. So what about some of the other troops? Like you mentioned Germans, you know, do they uh, – everybody has a different – role to play over there, so that's that, that, that's that group, so we won't mix the, the groups together. You're with the Canadians, Americans yeah. are with Americans, Germans are with the Germans, and somewhere, though, I'm thinking there has to be a coming together of this, of this operation, per oh, se. Oh, uh, when I left, uh, I had two, uh, two people to service uh, with the Afghan National Army. I had General Vance, who was a Canadian, yeah. and I had Colonel Harry Snell, who was the American. We were fighting in the same area. Yeah. Remember I talked about harmonizing? Yeah. I spent many hours, my staff, making sure that, you know, Colonel Tunnell had Afghan soldiers for his operations and we had more soldiers for General Vance's. Yeah. And we were working in partnership. Uh, one of the operations we did was with the, uh, the, the Afghan Brigade, Canadian Brigade, and the American Brigade. And the headquarters above all of us 
is completely multinational. Oh, yeah, and that's where I, I'm curious. We won't go further with that, but I understand the, the language. No, we're working is, together. Yeah, you work together, and I, I knew that. And, uh, and it's NATO background, and yeah. a lot of guys work together. We're not that yeah. big of a military across the world, and, and you bang in. I've been in a bunch of British officers that I knew because I spent three years at the Brits uh, in there, so it's a small world. The other question I had is, is to do with uh, not knowing the gross domestic product of, of Afghanistan, but you've got a lot of soldiers. Who, they pay their own soldiers? Americans pay them. Americans pay the Afghan soldiers? Yes, okay. To my knowledge, and I think most countries put bits. I think Canada pays a bit for the police. Okay. I would uh, just curious. That's a question that I don't have the answer. All I know is Americans are, are the, uh, the primary responsibility for the Afghan National Army. Okay. Uh, we're talking about the validation of those colors. They're responsible to check that. And every day uh, they have uh, reports back to, uh, to Washington on how the Afghan National Army is doing because they're paying the bill. And when you showed that diagram, you called it the flower pot, that 95% of the people yeah. and the others out in the outlying area, are there, are there such a thing as soft Taliban? I mean, if, if money is tough and you don't have a lot to, to feed your family, uh, do you ever get some converts? Or is there such a thing as a... Uh, a yeah. Taliban who wants to come and yes, uh, I go back to the street gang analogy. Okay, so okay, that covers. And it. I've seen uh, the Afghan capture a guy. Yeah. And I was with the general, and the guy come in, you know, he's blindfolded, took all that stuff off, he sat down, had tea with the general. So this is a guy that was against us, and he had tea with the general, and then his whole idea, I'm sure, it was completely changed when he realized that. He There's was, an opportunity yeah. for him. Right. Mark, I know I'm making you impatient. I just have one more question. That pretty picture you had of the poppies, are they growing uh, opium still? Yes. <laughs> okay. That's all I'm saying. Probably. That's not our bailiwick. Security is our thing, man. Thank you. I'm Avatanas from Pixie Butte, and thank you for your presentation, sir, on the inside information of your operation. We've talked about the bomb. Now I want to talk about the soldiers that die. Is there a way that we protect our soldiers because a roadside bomb seems to kill from the bottom up? When the Russians during the Second World War, since you referred to the same, fed their dogs under tanks, tied a mine to their bomb and sent them against the German tanks, is that still the weak spot in an armored vehicle? Is there no way that we can protect our soldiers with an armored plane? We do. You do, okay. And all I do is make a bigger bomb. The thicker we get, the thicker they get. At one point, when you talk about uh, military terms here, you've got to have mobility, mm. firepower, and protection. If you put too much in protection, you're unable to move, and you've got to take away some of your firepower. So it's a, it's a, a vicious triangle. But uh, our, I showed you a couple examples of, of vehicles. You don't hear what happens. A lot of, not a lot, we've had vehicles, people walked out unscathed. Mm. Uh, we detect pretty good. But the enemy, like I said, has a vote, and they just change their techniques and where they put the bombs. And when you live amongst the people, <laughs> the trick of coming up and, and using suicide bombs is out there. But uh, from what I understand of the culture, you notice there's not a lot of suicide bombers in the area because that is almost like anti-Afghan culture because that's not an honorable way to die. It's a cowardly way to die. Thank so, you. Thank you, sir. My name is James Moore. Thanks, Thanks for coming. 
Uh, I have a couple of questions. You, you said that you studied a little bit of Afghan history. Um, <clears throat> now, Karzai, the president, he's, in the terms of governance, there was a fraudulent election. One-third of the ballots were fraudulent, and he's still the president. Um, he was also working for Unicall and uh, developing the Tur Turkmenistan-Afghani-Pakistan-India pipeline. At that time, the, those uh, Konoko and Unicall were working with the Taliban to develop that pipeline for Turkmeni gas. Um, before that, uh, the Mujahideen, including Osama bin Laden, were working for the CIA against the Russians who were uh, supporting women's rights. So we're in the position now where, and I understand uh, and respect, you know, the Canadian soldiers, but you're doing what you're told. The political direction is what I'm questioning here. The TAPI pipeline was supposed to begin this year. The negotiations are still going on. Um, when the, uh, the Northern Alliance came in, which, were, which is what the Americans used against the Taliban, previously they were supporting the Taliban against the Northern Alliance when they were the allies of the Russians. Um, we should start to think about, like, is this about controlling oil in the interests of the corporations and are we being duped in general? And do you think that the Canadian soldiers or the people you're training should be defending that pipeline? And the second question is, what percentage of those troops that in the Afghani army that you were training are from the Pashtun and what are, who are from the northern tribes? Because in a tribal society where we have this history of enmity, and, and protection and, and that culture you spoke of, if you leave, what, what will result other than a civil war and how important is the pipeline? Thank you. Okay. Another thesis. Second question first. The, um, half, of the, half of them are Pashto, half of them are northern uh, Tajiks in the brigade I was working with. General Bashir, when he gave a speech, just like in Canada, French-English, would be Dari Pashto. And he would pride himself that the army shows unity. As the American army shows with their, the uh, African Americans and all their different racials inside their army, that shows unity throughout the country. So I didn't see any challenges. Even in our own country, we got the French-English debate. Okay? But it's almost pushed down when you get into fighting together. So there was no major concern at that level. Now, your political question... Everybody in this room, I'm sure, has an answer to that. Where we were working, we were looking at the governance of our own area. You go back in history, uh, Charlie Wilson's war, you've seen the movie. The ending at that says where they screwed up. They dropped the ball because they were fighting a counterterrorism. Back to my first gentleman that came up. When they thought the terrorism harbors were completed, they got out. Then they realized an insurgency. But at the same time, that was going on. They were elsewhere. Now, they're, ramp they're ramping down elsewhere, and they're coming back in to sort out the challenges they had before because Afghan uh, culture can become a good country. It's going to take time. Like I said, they've been at war for over 30 years. So anybody under the age of 40 has never seen peace. 
So we've got to somehow create the environment that they can understand peace. I'm a soldier. I'm an optimist. What I saw in my time over there, I saw progress. When you talk about national unity, look at our own country. <laughs> Danny's my hero, right, from Newfoundland. You got your own heroes, and even our own country points at the center, right? We all point at Ottawa here, everybody at this table. Point at Ottawa, they're not looking after us out here. Okay, so politics are the same world over. We always get the least, <laughs> least best in charge, or the best, the best of the least, or whatever you want to call it, best of the worst. Now, what does that mean? That's why it's so important at the district and provincial level, which there is unity and, 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 uh, and tribal affiliations, we, nothing is done without the elders, the tribal leaders, and the district leaders of that area developing. That's where the focus is. The pipeline, uh, like you read the papers, that could be a, a major benefit for the country, but it won't be us looking after it. It will be their own Afghan National Army because the pipeline is not going to be able to put there until you get stability. Once you get stability, then we're going to let them uh, look after themselves. You're getting right into the uh, geopolitics that uh, everybody has an opinion on there, sir. So, uh, yes, sir. My name is Henning Mundell, and my question concerns um, landmines, but I want to set it up a bit. Okay. Um, 89 to 91, my wife and I and family lived in Pakistan, and the Russians had just been kicked out, the Soviets, out of, uh, out of Afghanistan. Um, so there were a lot of um, Afghan refugees in Pakistan, and uh, the UN blueberries, including Canadian soldiers, engineers, were working in the refugee camps in Peshawar area, training um, Afghans how to recognize, mark, and demine. Uh, as a matter of fact, our uh, daughter went to a refugee camp and she brought a whole bunch of cloths back showing uh, the procedures and the different types of landmines. Some of them were sort of little butterflies and so on, things attracting children and so on. And, um, uh, but and one, uh, one was sort of a whole sequence. A little boy spotted one. He called, called his father. The father put rocks around, and then he called a soldier who knew how to demine. And here the Canadians, uh, with part of the UN team, uh, were there to the, for the children and women basically to teach them when they see to to identify to have the men mark around and then get experts to know demining. What is at that time? We were told there are still millions of landmines there. What's the situation now, 20 years later, in Afghanistan and particularly in Kandahar province? Okay, um, all of our maps are marked with the the minefields that. Uh, were left by the Russians, uh, so we avoid those areas. <laughs> after, t after a while, we have to go through. They have been demined uh, as much as possible. So what we know is marked on all the maps, and there's not much villagers in that area because what they're trying to do is keep them isolated in their villages. Uh, we have McDonald's signs uh, in Canada. They have great big signs with bombs on them, and a, a little child going towards the bomb and a, an adult pulling her back with a phone number to call. Okay? That's what they have for science in that country. I have a couple pictures of that. that. That really amazed me. Children, growing up seeing this, 
sometimes tell us where they are. And uh, Canadians are training their engineers how to do that. One of the success stories is when we got there, remember the yellow pillar? I talked about us engineers are in, in that. When we got there, the Afghans were wary of going outside the wire without Canadian engineers to help them uh, dis disable bombs or help them find them. At the end, we had trained the Afghan engineers. They weren't too worried if it was engineer Canadian or ANA that went out there with them. Now, also, because you're doing patrolling in an area, tr uh, working with the Afghans is much better because usually they see something has changed and they can notice it. The problem we have with them is that there's so much of a warrior people, they will go and grab the, the landmine and take it back, and we lost three or four like that. I had to give an order, don't do that. The you know, general had to, I said, sir, you, they're not doing the drill because it took four hours sometimes for the bomb disposal team to get there. 50 degrees, a little bit of water. They got teed off, and he said, took the bomb. I, I can still remember my captain calling me, sir, you brought her into the office. The bomb, here it is, sir. I'm, I'm tired of waiting. Okay, but then you put anti-handling devices on it, and that uh, wasn't much fun. So uh, we evolved as well, and so did the enemy. So it's uh, that's your question, sir. Well, I'll, I'll, have, I'll get the rest after. Okay, thank you. Uh, He's cut off. <laughs> we have time for uh, one more short question. Uh, my name is Van Christou. Thank you, Colonel, for your presentation. My people uh, came from Greece to Canada. Uh, at the end, end of the 19th century. And they at that time were just getting their liberation from Ottoman domination. The Ottomans had conquered Greece and dominated all that part of the world for 400 years. They lived under terrible brutality for 400 years. And at the end of 400 years, they had maintained their way of life, their cuisine, their religion, and everything else. When we're being told now that when we moved out, move out of Afghanistan, that there'll be a, a renewed people. They'll be thinking the way we think. Do you really believe that? Uh, I don't know. Who's, I don't expect them to think we, like we do. Uh, and our aim is not to have them think, and that's another misnomer in the, in the, you see in the, in the press. We are not telling them how to live at all. And we also learned that it's been, the job we're doing is very, very frustrating because we have our way of doing it and we try to teach them that way and they do it their own way. But if the job gets done, we learn to accept it. So that was one of the key things my guys had to learn is as long as it gets done, if they do it their way, so be it. That is the philosophy we've been taking throughout. And we're not uh, getting involved in their culture. We're understanding their culture. People talk about women's rights and all that. You know, you've seen the last time when someone talked about that, even the women got upset that the international community was getting involved with their culture. So we keep away from that altogether. We understand it. We learn to w live with that. Time changes everything. Don't forget, in Canada, the women weren't allowed to vote in Quebec until 1930. Okay? So we're probably 70, 80 years away in some aspects for certain things. I'm from Newfoundland. When I grew up, my parents weren't allowed, you know, I'm Salvation Army, they weren't allowed to speak to Catholics. Now they're both going to the same school. I was there last week. Okay? And I said, that's, wow, okay? So we evolve with time. 
And uh, I think the international community has realized, no, it's their problem. They have to sort it out. Remember my last set of seven bubbles, the link between the national security forces and the government. They have to learn themselves how to do counterinsurgency and uh, regain the people back on their side. All we're trying to do is give them the environment which they can do that. And we're not teaching them how to think, sir. That's a good question. Well, I'd like to... I'd like to thank Colonel Burt for giving us his time and his knowledge, and uh, we'll see you next week. Thank you.